And now for something completely different. Sometimes there are no words. Sometimes we need love, care, support, and affection. We don't want to explain anything. For young people with mental health issues like anxiety, depression, OCD, autism, therapy is often not enough. Paws for Patrick is an organization dedicated to connecting the love of animals to the people who need it the most. We facilitate that connection by assigning the seekers who contact us a wish granter who listens to their story and their needs and helps them acquire an animal or training or documentation so they can have their emotional support animal or ESA in their apartment, dorm, condo, etc. We even have trained therapy dogs and handlers who bring dogs to people who can't have their own. Patrick rarely had the words to express his feelings and his needs, but when he had the love of his dog, Cece, he had the strength to persevere. We want to provide every young person who could benefit that kind of love and support. Please check out our website at pauseforpatrick.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a need, reach out. If you want to help become a volunteer, fill out the form on our website. If you can donate, great, but please at least spread the word so we can replace the suffering and silence that many people do with the smiles and security that only the love of an animal can bring. Welcome in to another exciting episode of Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Makler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health and talk about the dilemmas that I'm facing in my practice, both as a school social worker and a therapist in private practice. Alongside me, as always, is Mariska, the three-toothed Patterdale Terrier. And as you may be able to hear, she is licking her paws. For regular listeners of the show, you know that that means that some of you have not been rating and reviewing and giving us a five-star review. Uh, it's not so important to me, but it's important to Mariska and her paws. For some reason, uh, dries out her paws when people do not follow, rate, and review. So if you could do that, if you have a question for us, that you would, an issue that you would like us to address, you can email me at daniel.makler, that's M-A-I-G-L-E-R, at L-I-V-E dot com. So daniel.makler at live dot com. So today, well, this weekend was prom for the high school where I work for lots of high schools around the country. And <laughs> a conversation I had with one of my students, he, he said to me, I'm thinking I should get Coke for prom. I said, wow, uh, yeah, have you ever heard of uh, gilding the lily? And so I had to describe to him what it means that a, a lily is a beautiful enough flower on its own. That when we talk about like dipping it in gilt, like getting gold on it, it just seems like uh, overdoing. That prom should hopefully be an enjoyable enough experience that we don't really need to add cocaine to it. And he said, yeah, but I think it'd be fun. And I said, well, probably. Uh, cocaine would, 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 you'd probably like it. Probably like it a lot. But uh, that's kind of the problem in that knowing you, you're kind of already a guy who likes to live on the edge a little bit. You like to gamble and you like to drive your car real fast. And I'm concerned that uh, if you had cocaine in your system, that you might make some some choices that were a little beyond the pale. And then maybe we just don't need this right now. And he's like, well, I'm not going to end up a Coke addict. <laughs> and I said, I don't think anybody ever said they wanted to become a Coke addict. I don't think that's a term that anybody's ever said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become a Coke addict. And that's uh, the challenge. I don't know that I convinced him not to get Coke for prom. Um, I hope I did. And again, that's that's a challenge when you are a 
therapist. How do you help your clients when you see them heading for a choice that might be not a wise choice? How do you help them to make that, to get to their own conclusions about that? Because therapists are not supposed to give advice. I'm not supposed to just say, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I was doing, a, I do clinical supervision for a social worker, a younger social worker who um, works in Chicago public schools. And she said, she had a 16 year old male student who he said, yeah, I'm thinking about trying to get my girlfriend pregnant um, because she wants to have a baby. And so I'm thinking about doing that. And again, she said, you know, I, I didn't want to come off as this nag, this old lady who's saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. No, no, no. And that's the question is like, where is our role as therapists in when a person is, you know, again, if they're planning a bank robbery, are we supposed to just say, no, don't do that? Or are we supposed to say, hey, here's how you can do it and get away with it or whatnot? And the way I look at that question is my job as a therapist is kind of act like a mirror. And I am reflecting back to the client, but I'm helping them to see the angles that they might be missing because they're too close to their situation. So what I told uh, the younger social worker is to say, here, what I might do is reflect my curiosity. I might say, well, gosh, when I was your age, when I was 16, being pregnant was the last thing I wanted. I think because, you know, and what would be your reasons? Maybe because for myself, I, I wanted to go on to college. I wanted to do a lot of different things. And that would have been hard for me to be a, a person who, you know, achieved my academic goals and achieved other things or found the work that I wanted to. But we also have to understand that we're coming from a di very different experience. In the case of the student that she's working with, he's 15 or 16 and he's still in middle school. Um, he has not even gotten to high school yet. So the chances of him graduating from high school and going on to college are virtually zero. That for him and the way he grew up, it might not seem like an odd thing in the community that he's living in. I remember my first job out of college was doing violence prevention programming for kids who've been kicked out of uh, Chicago public schools and they were in these alternative schools. And we had curriculum that we were delivering to them. And one of our lessons was how a two income home was more efficient was arguably better than a single income home, like a single parent home. We were not trying to imply that everyone needed to have a mother and a father. You know, it could be two sisters living together and raising their kids together, but that just having two adults there was better. But the kids got so mad at us. They were trying to they were saying, you're trying to tell me that my mother, who is both a mother and a father to me, is not a good parent, that she's not doing a good job. And we we're saying, no, that's not what we're trying to say. But we are trying to say, objectively speaking, that this will make life easier. You will have more income. You will have more supervision for the kids. So sometimes when you are trying to share things that are going against a person's experience, you may come off as judgmental. And that's a challenge for a therapist, that it's not our job, not my life experience is different than other people's. I don't know what's right for them. Ruby Payne is an author and a researcher and a former principal and superintendent. And she worked in Barrington, Illinois, and she worked in Texas in a lower income district. And she came up with this way of viewing, in her mind, every failure of a student to pass a class, a student to learn, is due to poverty. And it may not be economic poverty. It may be poverty of care, poverty of attention. 
And when we are trying to help people, we may, most educators, schools are set up with middle-class values in mind. That you are patient and you wait and you work and eventually you earn the money, you follow the rules and you do the things correctly and things are gonna work out for you. But she said, when you're working with a community and people who are from a community of poverty, their life lessons and experiences tell them that if they work and they save, someone will just come and take it away from them. So you better have fun when the sun is shining. You better use opportunities as they come up because scrimping and saving and waiting leads you to a lot of being taken advantage of. In the community on where I work, they, instead of having middle-class values, have the values of wealth. And the values of wealth say, you don't scrimp and save and wait because that's for losers. You are polite and you play nice, but when you have a problem and you want something a different way, you just go to the boss, you go to the CEO, you go over the little people. The rules are for little people. And, you know, you don't, it's not polite to say that, but, you know, you're exceptional. There's a reason why you have wealth. And it's not because you waited in line for it. And the teachers in the school where I work are often pissed because they feel like this is never going to work for these kids. They got to get it together. They can't just go to France and take a week off in the middle of the semester and have that and not expect expect that they're just going to have their assignments waived or they're going to get extensions and due dates. And that's not how life works. And those teachers are incorrect. That is how life works when you come from a culture of wealth. It is how life works when you come from a culture of poverty, that if somebody gives you, you know, a winter coat, you may sell it to get a DVD player. That's Ruby Payne's example. Because, you know, it's not winter right now and we need entertainment. It's not that they have bad judgment. It's that they have different values. So when I am trying to advise students, I don't tell them, don't make the decision to rob a bank my job is to help them figure out what they might not have seen in the angles of, is that worth it? I remember kids, when I worked in that, those alternative schools, they told me, well, we could give you a job, you'd make 500 bucks a day, and you would stand on top of a building, and you know, we'd give you a gun, and you'd have to protect the building and watch out for cops. Of course, if cops came in the first couple of weeks you were working, we'd have to take you out, because obviously, you know, they blew up the spot because of you. I said to them, you know, I have a couple major life goals, and one of them, is to never get shot and another one is to never go to jail so i don't uh yeah i'm not I'm not interested in that gig this morning when i was talking to the younger social worker she said uh one of her students saw her driving in her car and he was asking about it and you know she said he's like well is your car fast and she said no not particularly it's it just he's like well why'd you get it then she's like well it was one of the car that i could afford and uh you know it was available and it was cheap he's like well what if somebody drove up on you tried to rob you. Would you be able to get away? She's like, no. <laughs> he said, well, what would you do? She's like, I guess I'd get robbed. And that's, you know, that, that kind of thing is not something I worry about a lot. That's not my experience. That's privilege. That she lives in, the, in Chicago, probably only three or four miles from where most of her students live. But in the neighborhood she lives in, getting shot and having somebody drive up on you is not a real fear and consideration. My mother lives in Des Plaines, Illinois, which is a fine but not 
especially safe or wonder, you know, it's just a normal suburb of Chicago. And she lives in a building we have to buzz to get in, but and this is, I'm, I'm outing my mother here. She does not lock her door. I went to go and visit her uh, Friday after school and I forgot she was out of town. She went to go to Texas to visit some of her nieces. And uh, I went, walk, opened the door, walked right in like I always do. And I realized that even when she's going out of town, my mother doesn't bother to lock her door. She says, at this point, if anybody wants to steal anything from me, I'm better off without that thing. So if you want to rob my mother, you're going to, yeah, if you're listening to this, you're going to be able to do that. Um, and I understand where she's coming from. The same way we grew up leaving our doors open. And it was mostly because there was nothing in our house that was really worth stealing and selling. Even to this day, I, if you try to break into my house, you could break a window and get in. It's not that hard. And so I don't really care if I lock the door because replacing the window would probably be more expensive than almost anything I own. I just don't care that much about objects and things. And I have, obviously, Mariska to guard the house. No one's going to mess with her. That would be very, very foolish. So, but these are that a privileged mindset. Not so privileged that I, I need gates around me to protect my wealth, but the freedom of not caring that much about stuff, but also knowing I'm unlikely to have people breaking in. The, the vast majority of people who are breaking into places are doing so in places that are pretty local and easy for them to get to. Often in where I live, in the town where I live, most break-ins happen from teenagers who are robbing their neighbors or their own family because they have a drug addiction issue. And so what we're doing and what we're preparing for has a lot to do with the world that we're used to. So again, whether it's talking to kids about sex and the decision-making they're choosing, substance abuse, anything, instead of coming off as, no, don't do this, yes, do that, my response has to be to come to them with curiosity. Are you worried about this thing that I would be worried about if I were you? Allowing the student to be the expert and that's what I was telling the younger social worker. This is your chance to bond with that student because what he's trying to do is tell you about his life. I remember uh, when I worked at an alternative school, there was a boy who told me I'd be, I'd be really good at holding people down in prison when you were raping them. And he was testing me. He was letting me know a little bit about his experiences. And I responded back again with curiosity. I said, I've never really understood how people could get aroused for that. And I, to this day, I don't, I don't really understand. Like, how could I get aroused for a person who really did not want this? And he said, well, you just do it, you know? Okay. But instead of being like, oh, you're gross, or that's bad, or that's wrong, or me being offended by his statement, I was just allowing him to be the expert, and I was allowing myself to learn from him. In the case of Beth's student, he... Uh, had been in the gang, the Latin Kings. And when he tried, he didn't, there was two ways out of the gang, he had told me. You could go to college, well, three, I guess. You could go to the military, you could go to college, or you could get jumped out. And jumping out, like jumped out was like people would stand around you and beat you up. And if you, after you got through the beating, you were free to go. But he had seen someone try to leave the gang and get jumped out. And that person uh, was so savagely beaten that he was just scared want to do it he was a really skinny slight kid so he had to go back even though his mother had moved him to the suburbs he had to go back every weekend and sell drugs and if he didn't they told him that they would burn his grandmother's house down now that could all be bs but that's what he told me and in learning from him it makes it clear that 
the decision to be in a gang, not be in a gang, to do all of these things is not as simple and cut and dried as just, oh, it's wrong. In talking to that younger social worker, again, when I found in other kids that I worked, when I worked in the city with kids and gangs, for a lot of them, it was just kind of like I grew up playing Falcons football and wanting to play football for Maine South, the, the high school that was near me, and we had the same colors and things like that. For a lot of these kids, they grow up seeing their uncles and cousins and you know older siblings involved in the gang life, and it's a sense of belonging. It's kind of your team, your local neighborhood team. And if you're not going to be on a varsity sports team or things like that, it's something that you just belong with. And if you don't join a gang, you may be chased through a neighborhood just because you live in a different space. I had one girl and she she lived in a neighborhood where she was not trying to be gang affiliated in any way, but her father, her father was from Mexico and he had purchased a winter coat for her and she had she couldn't explain to him why she couldn't wear it, but it was because it was the wrong colors for their neighborhood. And if she had tried to wear that jacket in their neighborhood, she would have gotten jumped and beaten up. And so there are things that sometimes being involved, like there's a, there's a lot of people who are just peripherally involved, involved a little bit. But it isn't like in the movies. I had kids in classes who, you know, they would be buddies in school and then just out of school, they, you know, were in different rival gangs. But it was, to them, it was like one person was working at, you know, Jewel and the other was working at Kroger, different grocery stores. You know, like they, it was just a, a thing that they belonged to around their home neighborhood and something that they put time into, almost like a part-time job. But it was not, for them, a huge identity piece. There were certain, maybe, things, if there if there had been a shooting of a family member or whatnot, then they, by that arrival gang, they would have been upset about it. But most of the kids that they were interacting with were not, it wasn't as low, this was, I worked at a Catholic school, so kids were coming from all over the city. So it wasn't as if everybody was constantly at war with each other. So we have these different views of what media tells us and then the real view of the people who are living it every day. And people have the same dreams, goals, and desires. They want to connect. They want to be a part of something. They want to have fun. They want to see a future for themselves. They have ambition and a desire to be attractive to the people that they're attracted to. That's all. That's what everyone has wanted since the beginning of time and a way to prove themselves as successful. And when we give people better ways of doing that, they'll choose them. People are drawn to this feeling of being alive. They're drawn to a level of risk. So that young man who was thinking about doing the cocaine, who loves to gamble, who loves to do other things, it's because he wants to feel alive. He's not stupid. He's one of the smartest kids I've ever worked with. Um, but he can't tolerate boredom and want something more for himself. So when you're talking to people, instead of pretending you ever have all the answers, stop, listen, react with curiosity. And as we always say, do whatever it takes to get you through this world. Just remember, you are not allowed to die. Thank you.